we're in Ezekiel and we finished chapter 8 last time and one thing that I said at the end is if you go to Ezekiel 8 verse 18 therefore I will act in wrath my eye will not spare nor will I have pity and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice I will not hear them and the thing that I said last time is it is possible nationally and probably personally to get to a place where God doesn't listen to your prayers. That doesn't mean that if you turn from your sins and repent that you can't change sides in the kingdom but your physical circumstances very well may not change. And that's certainly the case with national Israel. They got to the point where God finally said okay enough of this, out of the pool, and sent them into exile. And at that point, it didn't matter what kind of praying they did. They were going into exile. I think the same thing happens with us. We can get ourselves into such a twist that God will finally say, okay, time to go into exile. You can squall and bawl and, and pray and do all the stuff you want, but you're going into exile. And you'll stay there until God decides it's time for you to come out. And we also talked about that very often the trouble you get into, God puts you into. And he does that for a number of reasons, just as he does with Israel. One reason is for his glory. So as you look at national Israel, when they fell into idolatry, apostasy, and murder and violence, they ceased to be representatives of God's people. In other words, they were not the shining city on a hill. They were not something that God could point to with pride and say, look at this thing that I have blessed. They were an abomination. And we'll see here in a minute what God does about that. So God says, okay, if you're not going to glorify me that way, you're going to glorify me in exile because I'm going to send you into exile and you're going to be really miserable and lots of you are going to die. But I'm going to preserve you through that so that the nations will see that I am able to preserve you. I'm sure everybody remembers the famous quotation by Mark Twain. The thing that most demonstrates the existence of God is the Jews. The only thing that has kept the Jews in existence as an identifiable people for 2,000 years is God. So God is being glorified in their exile. They would not glorify him while he was in the land. So, okay, we'll send you into exile and you'll glorify me there and you'll glorify me there by surviving. And I suggest to you that can happen in the life of an individual also. And as I say, you can squall and bawl and do all you want, but once God decides something like that, that's what's going to happen. When you get into adversity, what you need to do is stop and try and figure out why you're there. Or at least get to a safe place where you can stop. Take care of the guy that's mugging you and then figure out why you're doing this. It can be that you are there because you have screwed up and God's put you there. It can also be that you are there because of persecution. In other words, an attack by the enemy. But in either case, you're there to glorify God. If you are there because of your own malfeasance, which I will gently suggest happens most of the time, trying to escape that situation is a waste of time because God's got you there. If you are there because of adversity and you are expected to gain a victory, then you need to start marching and move forward if you can. You need to take assessment and figure out 
how you got there and whether it's your fault or something else is going on and obviously seek guidance of God or what you do about it from here. Let's move on to chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with a destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So where are they coming from? North, which is heaven. Heaven is north. So these are angels, messengers, if you will. And there are seven of them. And notice where they rally, at the bronze altar, which is judgment. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him, and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. This is going to happen again. One of the things that everybody gets all jacked around about is the mark of the beast. And what you need to understand is that the mark of the beast is a counterfeit. And it's a counterfeit for this mark that the angels of God are making on the foreheads of those who are to be spared during the destruction of the city. So, with that in mind, who is going to give this mark on the forehead and what is going to be the excuse, do you suppose? It's going to be done by the religious system, the false prophet, I suspect. Well, and I will suggest to you that one of the things that will be used to justify it is this will keep you safe during the trouble that is to come. It's a counterfeit. And it's a counterfeit of the one that's done by God. Satan doesn't do anything new. And so what I'm suggesting to you is this mark will be religiously approved, justified, and perhaps administered. And the reason for it is going to be something like, this is going to keep you safe. How do you know? Whether you got the real one or the counterfeit. I don't know, but I think that you will know. And the only place that I know in the end times where that mark is applied is to the 144,000. And that will be done, again, in a way that they will know who they are. They are basically being deputized. And depending on what you think their function is, and there are lots of speculation, one of the speculations is they are going to serve the same function that Moses did. Remember, Moses' job was to go into Egypt, the world, and gather the people of God and lead them out. So Moses' job was to save, if you will, the children of Israel or the people of God from out of the world system. I can see that being the function of the 144,000. And so the people who are being saved are not going to get a mark, but their leaders will. That's speculation. Verse 7. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. 
And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded me. All right, this is going to take some unpacking. First off, in verse 7, defile the house. It's the temple we're talking about. What's that mean? Dead bodies in the temple area, in the presence of God, are a defilement. And it was very necessary for all sorts of purification and stuff to take place before priests came in to the holy place or the holy of holies. So what God is saying is, that's not my abode anymore. And just to make sure everybody knows it, we're going to litter the place with dead bodies and defile it. They can't even pretend I'm there. In verse 9, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. This is not the blood that God is about to shed. This is the blood that is shed by national Israel. Because you remember what I've said over and over again is when God finally gets ready to come down and sand down a place, he does it not because of idolatry, not because of sodomy or sexual perversion, not for any of those reasons. The reason he finally comes down and cleans house is because of violence and bloodshed. Now, having said that, idolatry and immorality and all those kinds of things are part of a progression that ultimately leads to bloodshed and murder. So God says, don't even start on that path. But Israel and everybody else goes down the path of idolatry and perversion and all those kinds of things. And that is not the thing that finally moves God to take action. It is injustice. It is violence. It is bloodshed. And that's the thing that finally fills him right up to here. And he says, okay, we're sending in angels and we're going to clean the place out. And that's what's happening here. The land is full of blood, the city full of injustice. For they say... The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. Where have we seen that before? It's a preamble to the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32 is the Song of Moses, but you want to be in 31, because the passage I'm going to talk about is in 31. Remember, the Song of Moses is a recitation of all of the things that are going to happen to Israel. Exile and all those kinds of things. So it's a really a pretty grim thing. And of course, at the end, God then brings his people back. Deuteronomy 31:16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they will go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. Sound like Ezekiel we just read? This is Torah. Okay, this is Deuteronomy. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. In other words, all of this bad stuff that's happening to us wouldn't be happening if our God hadn't abandoned us. It's all God's fault that this stuff is happening 
Because if he were around protecting us like he promised to, none of this would happen. That sound like any Sunday churchgoers that you know? Where's God in all this? And what God is saying here is when you get to the point where I have to come down there, which is what we're seeing in Ezekiel, one of the things that you're going to say is, if God had been here, it would have been okay. But he left. So it's his fault. Isn't that what is being said here in Ezekiel? Let me read it again to you. Ezekiel 9.9 The Lord said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. What's the situation in the land when they're saying this? What's happened is this is between the first and second invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Ezekiel is talking from exile. What is going to happen next as a result of this prophecy is Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back and he's going to sand the city off flat. So they are in this period between the first and second Babylonian invasion. And they're saying, if God had not forsaken the land, we wouldn't be up to our hips and Babylonians right now. God said in Deuteronomy, that's what you're going to say. And the point is, they are justifying the compromises and stuff that they are doing with the saying that God is no longer here. I mean, if God were here, we'd follow him, but he's not here. He's abandoned us, so we got to do whatever we got to do. That's what's being said here. And what they wind up doing is descending into injustice, violence, bloodshed, all sorts of abominations. But it starts back up here before the invasion with idolatry. So now we're on to chapter 10. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. We've seen that before and we will see that again. I believe it's the incense altar. Where did we see it before? Korah's rebellion. And what happened after Korah's rebellion, you remember the earth opens up and swallows Korah and all his cohorts and, and allies. They go down and everybody goes to bed. The next day, all of the house of Israel gets up and comes to Moses and said, you're a rotten leader, Moses. If you were better at this Messiah stuff, we wouldn't be losing all these people. And God shows up and says, out of the way, Moses. Let me destroy him. And a plague starts in the children of Israel. Moses says to Aaron, quick, run in and get some fire from the altar, throw incense on it, and run as fast as you can run into the middle and stand between the plague and the people. And Aaron does that. We see that again in Revelation 8, where an angel takes fire from the altar between the cherubim, same description, and scatters the coals over the earth. And what's happening here is this angel who has been doing the forehead marking takes fire from between the cherubim, which I am assuming is the altar of incense, and he scatters it over the city of Jerusalem. Why? To keep them from being consumed. And I'm suggesting that's the mechanics by which those who are marked are spared. Three. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in. And a cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub 
to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Let's go to Revelation 8. Let's pick it up at the beginning. When he had opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. How many people are coming to judge Jerusalem now? Seven. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saint ascended before God from the angel's hand. Does that sound like what we just read in Ezekiel? In Ezekiel it's happening in Jerusalem. In Revelation, the same thing is happening in heaven. And the mechanics are virtually the same. You get this cloud of incense that goes up, and the cloud and the glory fills the place. Revelation is more terse, but the two incidents read very much alike. Back to Ezekiel. Verse 6. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, and between the cherubim is where? That's where God sits, isn't it? So we're not talking about the brazen altar here, the altar of judgment. We are talking about the altar of incense. He went in and stood beside a wheel, and the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put it in the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went, but on whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes and their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels that four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, the second face the face was a human face, the third face the face of a lion, and the fourth face the face of an eagle. And we went through that when we saw the first vision, which leads you to the conclusion by comparison that a cherub looks like an ox. If you compare Ezekiel 1 with Ezekiel 10 here. And so the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Hebar Canal. In other words, what he's doing is he is taking you back to his first vision. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the Chebar Canal. I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. Do you understand it now? I've said it three times. They are the same. And by the way, I have no insight whatsoever on the wheels and all that. I, I just don't know. Chapter 11. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway were 25 men. And I saw among them 
Jaazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, the time is not near to build houses. Most of your translations will have this different. And it can also be read, is not the time near to build houses? Which is a completely different sense. One is the negation of the other. And I, I suspect most of your Bibles will have it the other way. Is not the time near to build houses or, or some variation on that? The time is not near to build houses. The city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. As we'll see in a minute, this comment, the city is the cauldron and we are the meat, which on the face of it looks pretty bad. As in the place is going to get heated up and we're going to get cooked. Is actually, we are the meat safe inside of a cauldron. The pot is our armor and keeps us safe. And as we read further, you'll see that that's the sense of it. We have to keep reading in order to get that. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and have filled its streets with the slain. Notice who has filled the streets with the slain. Israel has. This is not the judgment of God that's being talked about here. This is the iniquity of the nation of Israel. Violence and bloodshed. Seven. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron. But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. In other words, they're saying, we're the meat, this is the cauldron, which is to say, we're inside this iron kettle and we're safe. And God is saying, no. The ones you have slain are going to be the ones that are safe. I'm going to take you out of this city, and you're not going to be safe. But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst of it, and give you into the hands of foreigners, and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Now you begin to see what the sense of that phrase is. And you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that were around you. What does God say to them in Deuteronomy as they're getting ready to go into the land? When you go into the land, you do not ask how they do stuff. You just do stuff my way. Don't study their ways. And what have they done? They have studied the ways of the nations that were there, and they have adopted them. And it came to pass, while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, died, then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, O oh Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. What it means is that the Jews, and they are Jews in the land. There's predominantly Judah with some Levi and some Benjamin because remember the ten northern tribes are already gone. So it is primarily Judah. And Judah is sitting there saying, God has promised us this land. We are going to be fine. And all of those people who went into exile, they are far from the Lord. So the sense of this is they are sitting in 
Israel saying, we are God's chosen people, we are in his land, we are going to be safe in his land, and all those exiles, they're far from God, they're apostate, they're gone, they're scattered, they've disappeared, promises don't apply to them. 16, therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Remember, he says, you will glorify me. You will either glorify me in prosperity and plenty in Israel, or you will glorify me in terror and want in exile, but you will glorify me. And what he's saying here is, yes, I have scattered them. Yes, I have sent them far off, but I have kept my hand on them. 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Remember the beginning of this was Judah was saying, this land is now ours. And all those hairy Ephraimites and all those guys are gone. We're it. We're all that's left. The land belongs to us. We have the promise. And what God says is, no, you guys are going into exile too. And then I'm going to go out into exile where I have scattered all these people, those who are still faithful to me, and I am going to gather them up and I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to give them this land that you're now claiming. 18. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. What does that sound like to you? New covenant. And this is why it is my opinion that we are not living under the new covenant. We're living in exile. The new covenant is when God reassembles his people and brings them back into the land and he takes the heart of stone out of their bodies and puts a heart of flesh in there and he writes his word on that heart. That's genealogy. You may do with that whatever you like. 21. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. They're holding on to the promises of God, but they're ignoring the conditions on those promises. Now, is there any other group of people that you know that only uses part of their Bible? It's a serious question. And I think that there are just a whole lot of people in this world that are going to be very, very surprised when they discover that God means the whole Bible, not just the book of John or Paul. God means it all. And just as the Jews here in Jerusalem are holding on to the part of the Bible that they like, so too with many of us. We hold on to the parts of the Bible we like, and we quote those, but we ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like. And it's all one book. You can't do that. From beginning to end, it's all one book.